0: Welcome to The Key with IHE. I'm Paul Fain, the host and a contributing editor with Inside Higher Ed. During this episode, we'll be talking about competency-based learning, or education. This delivery method has grown over the last decade, although not at the rate many predicted. But some experts think CBE and the reliance on competencies could become more common during the pandemic and recession. To get a sense of the CBE landscape, we spoke with Sharla Long, the executive director of the Competency-Based Education Network, or CBEN. A national consortium of colleges and systems that work on competency based learning. Long talked about the outlook for CBE and what has prevented some colleges from taking the leap.
1: So, when I think about barriers, it's amazing how much we desire to be perfect before we launch. We are paralyzed by perfection sometimes. It's the reason for a pilot, right? So, I think the difference between institutions that have had the courage and commitment to launch a CBE effort, said, I'm not going to get it right from out of the gate. It's okay to fail.
0: I also spoke with Dick Sinise, the president of Capella University. Sinise talked about Capella's long history with competencies and how it was one of the first to offer direct assessment, a more aggressive form of CBE.
2: With the opportunity to take advantage of direct assessment as an approach, which actually began in the Obama administration, We develop what we now call FlexPath, this uh, way that learners are able to have a more flexible program and continue to be able to weave their education into their lives, because working adults have complex lives, and certainly much more complex in 2020 than any of us would have
0: imagined. A quick note about this episode. It's sponsored by Strategic Education, Inc., which is Capella's parent company. Since the episode features Capel's president, I wanted to let you all know SEI is the sponsor. All right, let's get to the conversation. Charlotte Long, very good to see you.
1: Likewise, Paul. It's great to be here. Oh,
0: I know you have a lot going on, and we can talk about that later. Busy week, so uh, doubly appreciative of you taking time to talk with me about the state of competency-based learning, something we've talked about for a long time. Can you give us a sense of where things stand right now in this wild moment?
1: Yeah, it would be great to know where things stand right now, right? I could tell you going into the pandemic, we were seeing really slow but steady growth. The latest survey, national survey of CBE programs showed us still around that 600 mark, about 25% of community colleges being adopters, but Post-pandemic, I think we're seeing big lifts right now. Uh, This conference, CB Exchange that we're at this week, we're certainly seeing institutions that had never been in the mix before attending. We're seeing institutions send two, three people to learn more about what CBE is. So I do think as the result of the pandemic, people are saying, you know, we've we've moved to online or we've moved to remote learning, I might say, but could CBE be part of a solution that would really allow us to rethink higher education post-pandemic? That's what we're seeing at the moment.
0: And can you talk about some of the reasons that might be? I mean, I've certainly heard some. Uh, there's going to be a lot of swirl out there, uh, probably increased interest in short-term credentials, if not enrollment right now what are some of the benefits that you see really being more attractive to folks right yeah.
1: now yeah so one is i think those institutions that had cbe programs saw that when the pandemic hit people just their their programs continued as is and they continued to grow they didn't struggle. Like non-CBE programs were really struggling to figure out how do I even do remote learning? What does that even look like? How do I teach in this kind of environment? So CBE programs really didn't get impacted by the pandemic. So I think that's one reason why people have this, this interest. Second is, you're right, we have a lot of Americans that are out of work that are Underemployed that have had to take opportunities in less than desirable locations and in roles just so that they can uh, maintain some economic stability, those individuals are saying, retool me, reskill me, help me get back into a work-based context that I can really grow and thrive. I think competency-based education, focusing on what are the competencies, what are those knowledge, skills, abilities, intellectual behaviors that are really needed in today's post-pandemic marketplace is absolutely essential and CBE programs and and competency-based learning approaches are really poised to help those folks that find themselves unemployed or underemployed get back into the right kind of employment opportunities. So I think that's another reason. You're right about smaller credentials, give me what I need right now so I can get food on the table and I can pay my electric bill, absolutely is a concern. But I would say in the process, it's absolutely critical that we don't leave behind some learners in the process. And I think early data is already showing, we've got some inequities that are happening as a result of the shifts that occurred during the pandemic. We wanna be really careful um, that we're addressing those now and making sure that any solution we build going out from this, this moment in time, are bringing all learners along, right? And so I think CBE programs offer an approach that can lead to much more equitable outcomes. Uh, we see that at programs that have CBE offerings today, they're they're seeing a lot better results from an equity standpoint. And so we wanna really embrace that, run that out throughout the US for sure.
0: I have some understanding of why from an equity concern standpoint, you have a disproportionate impact of the pandemic uh, economically and in other ways on Black, Latino, and lower-income students um, who may be leaving higher ed in large numbers, which is a, a big problem. I can see the benefits of competency-based learning in that it provides more flexibility, you know, encourages folks with what they know and can do. Can you talk a little bit about what you see the benefits in terms of an equity frame?
1: CBE programs are really intentionally designed to say, how do we acknowledge what that student knows and can do, how do we talk to that learner, connect with that learner based on their unique position, right? So how do I serve this particular learner? What are their needs? How do I wrap the support services around them to help them stay what I call sticky? How do I increase the stickiness so that they'll persist with me until completion of that credential? people long to be in relationship, people long to be known. And so in CBE programs, we're developing those deep relationships, thinking about what is it this particular learner needs in order to be successful, and then giving them what they need, right? And so when we think about they need a mobile Wi-Fi access. They just need an iPad. They could really use a, whatever their needs are, let's, let's help get that for them so they can continue in their educational journey. So one is the wraparound student support services. One is the approach of personalization, acknowledging what a person brings to the table. Um, One is being able to really focus on what I am teaching you, you can translate to day into a work context, into an employment context, you're developing those knowledge and skills that employers want and need. Yeah. I mean, I think those are some of the key areas. I would say that in in a couple of days at Exchange, you'll see an announcement that's made, and it's really around this focus on how do we help more institutions build CBE programs for equitable outcomes. So I'm sure you'll be seeing something about that in a couple of days as well and our commitment in that area.
0: Definitely be watching that. Thank you for the heads up. Um, You know, employers, big employers on big national stages in particular, have been talking about skills-based hiring for a while before the pandemic. And, you know, the focus more on competencies than necessarily credentials hasn't always happened at the HR level. Do you see this moment breaking things loose a bit uh, for employers in terms of competency-based learning and hiring?
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, certainly they're looking across their organization. Some have have had to do major furloughs. Who do we bring back? Who, Who are we gonna have to permanently lay off? Where are we changing our business model? I mean, you think of the industries that have been significantly impacted retail, hospitality. I mean, even uh, here in Tennessee, which is where I'm based, um, certainly in the South, many of our businesses open, but they're still at limited capacity. Our staffs are down. How do I make a decision about what are the new competencies that we need in our workforce? I think that we will see more and more employers move to skills-based hiring, and for the employers listening, I hope they hear me say, and I need you to say to your institutional partners, and I need you to tell me what are the skills you're actually preparing learners to be able to demonstrate when they earn a credential, right? So if they're going to move to skills-based hiring, I also need them to be conveying that, right, to the institutional partners that they work with so they, too, can transition to skills-based or knowledge skills, those competency-based learning models as well. I think it takes employers conveying that clearly on the higher ed side that we need you to do this in order for me to be able to get our economic engine going again.
0: Let's talk for a minute about um, the Tower of Babel challenge with competencies, you know, I I know There's Arizona. There's a
1: tower of Babel. <laughs> just kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it, the, a question that's just been there for a long time. But if if you know Arizona State's trying to define competencies right now, a bunch a bunch of major providers are trying to. Have a say in in helping kind of set the table for for a broader expansion of competency based learning. Do you see potential there? Um, whether you know state level, system level, real progress could be made to help uh, institutions by by giving a bit more of a standard template.
1: Absolutely. I think that we'll see it not just in the language around what the competencies are. So you look at the work of Open Skill Network, for example, and others that are trying to create these rich skill descriptors that institutions can use. When we align around language, we now have something in common that we can exchange, right? So we often say competency is currency. Well, we all know what a dollar bill is and what a dollar bill can buy you. But what I call communication and what you call communication or what I call critical thinking, you call problem solving and decision making. And we have a hard time exchanging it because we don't use the same language. So I applaud those that are doing that. I hope that people will not do that in silo and for self-promotion purposes, but instead will do that with the good of the movement in mind, I hope we can engage in those conversations as well to think about what is it that all institutions need? What is it that our employers need to do that great work with the US Chamber and others? I mean, to really try to craft the language, absolutely essential. I think competency language is only part of that. The next piece to tackle will be how do we assess that? What does the performance of that look like? When we start to align around what successful performance looks like, now you eliminate really the need for an A, B, C, or D. It's really about did you have performance and at what level can you perform that particular competency? Ah, now we're getting to the kind of new model that we can get really excited about. But you're right, got to share a common language. It's one of the key features.
0: Thanks for indulging that. You know, looking forward, it's hard to do these days. Uh, every day we're learning more about the future, but uh, it's there's a lot of uncertainty. Can you talk about some of the barriers that concern you that might prevent CBE from scaling up to the next level, or, or even some of the incentives you'd like to see to help you get there?
1: Yeah, so when I think about barriers, it's amazing how much we desire to be perfect before we launch. We are paralyzed by perfection sometimes. It's the reason for a pilot, right? So I think the difference between institutions that have had the courage and commitment to launch a CBE effort said, I'm not going to get it right from out of the gate. It's okay to fail. I mean, I've talked to a university president recently who's on version number three of a CBE program. That's good, right? They acknowledge, We went way too this way, now we're way too, and we gotta go right back, you know. And so that's what it's about. But I think being paralyzed by this need to get it perfect and right is causing a lot of institutions not to start. So, get a model out there that you think is 80% there. Refine it. Listen to your learners. Consider that as a continuous improvement process. So, I would say that's one. Then second, one of the things that we've seen that's been very helpful at energizing the movement is the, the CARES Act money, to be honest. Institutions have had some money to spend and they've said, you know, tuition may be down, but we ought to be thinking about the future. And I have several many, many and many institutions who have said, uh, can we use that and get some instructional design? Can you use that and help us think through what a CBE strategy would be? I mean, we look at state systems that are putting together full strategies around how they want to do CBE in their state. California Online Community College Chancellor's Office, working, work through the summer, in the middle of the pandemic to say, what can we do to achieve more equitable outcomes using CBE as the solution? They're working on a statewide strategy. In Kentucky, the Kentucky Community and Technical College system is looking at what all 16 institutions could do if they could just align to the most needed workforce knowledge and skills and abilities it have that alignment in their general education their technical education and their workforce solutions program why why be in three silos what if we could unite across that common language that babel comment that you made earlier what if we united across some common language would it help us could we offer a CBE solution could it lead to better outcomes for our learners more equitable outcomes and so I think we're seeing interesting movement and movement that ought to be watched at these state levels of saying we've seen it demonstrated at an institutional level what would this look like if we brought it up and across a whole system we're seeing a lot of movement that way I'd encourage Our regulators, our lawmakers, our philanthropy organizations, help us out. Think about how you can fund and help support that kind of innovation, whether that's through a demonstration project and some funding to help there, whether that is in, you know, some of the kind of stimulus funding or other funding to help recover from the pandemic. Tie that to making sure that you're developing programs that lead to the knowledge and skills and the abilities that we need to drive the American economy forward. I think we'll continue to see significant growth in CBE.
0: Well, Charlotte, you've done a, a phenomenal job setting the table in a fascinating time for this field. So I hope we can keep in touch. And I want to thank you for the access today and over the years. You know, uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, when you let me kind of watch a CBE program in person at Lipscomb University several years back, it really clicked for me and really showed the potential here. So thank you so much.
1: And I would just say to Paul, uh, you have been a real blessing to the field and to competency-based education. You're one of those rare people who dug in enough to get to understand it and not make judgments about it until you actually saw it and you saw how it worked and the lives it changed. And so I'm forever grateful for you taking the time. The movement is thankful for you and the time you've spent really understanding it. So thanks for letting me be here with you today, Paul.
0: Thanks, Charlotte. That means a lot. I appreciate it. If you're looking to go even more in-depth in, in IHE's news coverage, check out our special reports. These deep dives feature rich data and reporting, as well as thoughtful, substantive analysis you can trust. Visit InsideHigherEd.com backslash special dash reports to view the topics we've covered and to purchase the report that best supports your area of work or study. I'm speaking with Dick Sinise. Dick, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well. Thanks for making time for me. Uh, You know, I know Capella is hardly new to competency-based learning. You all created a framework for all of your courses, I believe, as being competency-based long ago. Can you talk a little bit about that approach and how it got you to this moment?
2: Sure, of course. You know, uh, Capella University, as you mentioned, uses a competency-based curriculum model. And that really is at the core of our mission right to offer high quality programs for working adults who are seeking to advance in their career so a competency is that combination of knowledge skills and professional dispositions that are required in a job setting in a professional setting and so we use backwards design for all of our curriculum design and have for many many years with the opportunity to take advantage of direct assessment as an approach which actually began in the Obama administration we develop what we now call FlexPath, this uh, way that learners are able to have a more flexible program and continue to be able to weave their education into their lives. Because working adults have complex lives, and certainly much more complex in 2020 than any of us would have imagined.
0: Certainly, from the beginning, felt like direct assessment was revolutionary in, in a lot of ways. Um, not easy to do, I know, from, from a lot of, for a lot of reasons. With the exception of, of Capella um, and a few others and CBE more broadly, not just direct assessment, obviously Western Governors, the growth hasn't been huge. You know, it's been steady and good, but you all are at the, the forefront. Can, can you talk about why that is, why it's taken a while for the field to kind of get where you are?
2: Sure. Well, it's hard to speculate about, you know, every other institution of higher ed, right? At the same time, we know that higher ed can be very tradition-bound, right? But yet, innovators have developed, you know, Capella University among them um, and shown a path to offer programs like FlexPath. I think if the pandemic has taught institutions of higher education, including Capella, how to even be more flexible, more innovative, I can't imagine what else has, you know, the rapid shift everyone had to do. So I'm hoping that as people look to innovation and look to programming, more and more people will discover and more and more institutions will discover ways to offer flexibility for their learners through direct assessment program.
0: I'm curious about the students who've been attracted to FlexPath, mm-hmm. uh, who they tend to be, what they're what sort of programs they're interested in. You know, I know you all have pretty good outcomes, too. So if you could give us just a flavor of how how it's worked for students.
2: Yeah, you know, so the learners uh, that have come into FlexPath, and and we asked some of those same questions, right? So we did a really robust study over looking at a five-year cohort, 2013 to 2018. Now, of course, this just applies to a typical FlexPath student, but, you know, we've seen higher two-year persistence rates almost – 25, just under 25% higher persistence rates. We've seen people move more quickly through bachelor's programs and master's programs. So, you know, slightly more than half of the people in the bachelor's program move more quickly than their traditional program counterparts, uh, about 40% of the master's. And that's an important thing, because I think everyone thought when direct assessment really got going, everyone's going to move faster. The truth is, It helps people fit it into their lives, right? You're a busy working nurse, for example, and you maybe aspire to be a nurse leader and you're going for your MSN. Suddenly, you know, with COVID, maybe you need to take a little time off. Maybe you need to go a little slower or you have a family obligation, even in the pre-COVID days, right? You have family community obligations. So what it really does is it gives people control over their educational timeline and flexibility in a way that no other program in higher education can do. And, you know, students and learners of all all kinds need that more now than ever.
0: You know, I, I hear you on the the time where everybody was focused on early completers. And, and one of the questions that I love to ask people is, you know, how, how does your program cope with a student who's really struggling? And this is mastery. You know, there's no... Uh, yeah. There's no agreement for a subpar grade and move on. And, and how has Capella treated that question over the years?
2: Yeah. So, you know, this is an educational program. So there are faculty, there are faculty qualified tutors, there are all the other academic support resources available to students in our FlexPath program to contact a reference librarian, to reach out to faculty members, to have faculty reach out to them. So all of that is happening, but it's happening on the schedule of the learner, not on the schedule of the institution, within broad parameters, right? There are these 12-week subscription periods and that sort of thing. So it's not an unlimited scheduling opportunity, but all the support resources um, are available. And of course, there are faculty who are actively involved with our learners.
0: I certainly get. The enhanced need for flexibility—that's kind of a, a delicate way of, of putting it—as uh, any parent knows, uh, these are these are hard times for scheduling. You know, beyond that, though, uh, you know, we've seen the numbers of the uncertainty and anxiety students or potential college students face is the barrier right now, uh, even more than finances, which is kind of stunning. Does, how does CBE play into that? I mean, I, I could see some reasons why it would be attractive in, yeah. and that it, it really looks at what you know and can do.
2: Well, that's a really important point, right? Competency-based education starts with what is required for someone with that credential in the professional workspace to be able to do. What should they know? What should their professional dispositions be? And A high-quality CVE program uses backwards design to weave those competencies into what become called courses. You know, when I taught at a traditional liberal arts college or public schools that I've taught at, the course content was content-based. It was whatever I wanted to teach in a way. What was my area of expertise? Here in a competency-based program, We have an interwoven set of competencies that align directly to the professions, right? And that, I think, helps learners gain the assurance that they're learning the right things, that it's professionally relevant. We do a lot of different things to ensure that we maintain the professional relevancy, the currency. Some fields change rapidly. My own field of psychology changes rapidly. So we have to keep those things current. And that's why people, I think, when they're looking at programs, those are the kinds of questions they should ask of CBE programs.
0: As we grapple as a nation with the economic turbulence and its disproportionate Mm -hmm. impact on Black and Latino and and low-income folks, is there added urgency to help institutions across their boundaries Uh, do more to standardize something? I know that's a dangerous term and, uh, you know, but uh, given how hard it is in some cases to to use the same language uh, with employers or with different employers and different institutions, do you see any changes afoot there?
2: Well, I think there's at least two sides of maybe probably more of what you're talking about. One certainly is affordability as well. So programs in direct assessment are much more, can be much more affordable. Certainly at Capella um, they are. When we did our study, we found that, you know, the tuition that we ended up charging learners was like almost 60% less, 59% less on average. And the financial aid they used was much less as well. So that's a really important element too. I think, you know, institutions need to be true to their mission. They need to find Um, that which they want to make a mark with. In Capella's case, we're making that mark by focusing on competencies, by focusing on working adults. I know there's a great conversation, and we should talk about this next time, maybe, um, within higher education about transfer and about prior learning assessment. And, you know, I know KL and uh, ACE have both convened task forces. I'm on the A.C.E. Task Force American Council on Education on Transfer Credit. We'll have a report coming out over the next couple of months about these very questions. But I think having competency-based education really helps ensure this alignment to the profession. And that's super important.
0: Prior learning assessment was another area, you know, 10 years ago, where we thought in that last recession that it was really gonna go gangbusters and didn't as much as a lot of people hoped, um, I think in different ways and different reasons in CBE. Uh, and again, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be dumping cold water on an innovation that's doing quite well. So, you know, looking forward, uh, a lot of uncertainty, maybe less every day, who knows? But you know, what are some of the milestones we should be looking for with Capella and FlexPath in the next year or two?
2: Well, you know, we recently launched our first doctoral program in FlexPath, a Doctor of Nursing Practice. We're really excited about that. Continuing to help support nursing and health sciences as as they need additional professional education for people to advance. Working with a host of partners across across that industry, um, I think you'll continue to see, you know, other innovations into fast-growing areas. That's what we always want to, you know, look for professionally. Um, where can we help people move move in their profession, gain socioeconomic status, and have a, have a manageable cost to it all, both in terms of time and money. So we continue to, to scan for those things. I think more and more you're going to see institutions look to innovate. I think the the notion that higher ed can't be innovative, I think, is being disproven across uh, the board by reactions to COVID. And I hope that more and more institutions of higher ed will look to innovations that really provide a high-quality education, but really do it from the perspective of how how can this help the learner with their goals and fit into their life. I mean, you know, you can't can't fool demographics, right? And More and more people who are going to be approaching higher ed looking for a credential of any kind, a certificate, a short term credential, or a degree, or even a doctoral program, doctoral degree, are really going to be working adults. You know, they're going to be starting in a career and they're going to want to advance in that career. And that's really where uh, Capella University has its focus.
0: What do you think the potential for short-term credentials might be? I mean, I know there's, there's a lot of variables here, but we, we're, yeah. we're hearing more interest in them, if not necessarily enrollment trends yet. And, you know, yeah. I just wonder about how that, that fits with the CBE question looking forward as well.
2: Well, I think, you know, the broad answer to your point is CBE can be used in any kind of program, short-term program, any subject matter, any degree level. Um, I would expect that in certain fields, short-term programs will become more prominent um, as upskilling and as knowledge turns over faster and faster in some areas than in others. And it's really, I think when employers start to create more demand for those, that you'll see more supply, right? It's ultimately this kind of supply and demand question about what are the signals employers are looking for in order to hire hire the right person. And I think you see this because more and more employers are helping their employees go back to school, whether that's for a short-term credential or a, a full degree.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, I've been in quite a few conversations with employers or, or workforce oriented folks over the years who say, you know, they, they love competencies, <laughs> certainly at the C-suite level, but it doesn't always translate as you know, Do you see that dynamic shifting? Because it sure feels like it, at least right now, in terms of really large employers uh, getting more and more engaged and more urgent here.
2: I think that that will continue to be the case, where more and more employers um, at all levels of the organization will start to understand the value of using competency frameworks to understand uh, job qualifications, to really understand... What what are the important things for someone to have to bring to any position? And again, that's the interface between education and employment, right? Where, you know, in order to be the shortest, to provide the shortest distance between education and employment, having a well-articulated competency framework within the educational program that aligns to profession, that uses authentic assessment, which asks you, to essentially perform similar tasks to what you might do in your job. And that's what it is um, that you're being assessed on by uh, faculty. Those are the kinds of programs that increasingly, as people learn about them, they um, increasingly have greater confidence in.
0: As you know well, a wide industry transformation to competencies as the currency would be uh, a very big change in higher education. What do you see as being some of the keys to that happening in the next few years? Any, any kind of, whether it's incentives or barriers that need to come down, what, what are you looking at?
2: Well, I think first up, you know, in higher education, I don't know that we want a single model everywhere, right? Different institutions have unique missions, unique traditions, unique histories, and we need to let them be who they are. For institutions like Capella, that are focused on helping working adults. I think competency-based education makes all the sense in the world because it it provides that direct link between education and employment. For, um, you know, some institutions may have particular programs that are competency-based and others that aren't for for really solid reasons. And I think that's part of the diversity of higher education is both part of what uh, makes it strong And part of what maybe makes it slow to look for, you know, some sector-wide adoption of a particular innovation. But I do think more and more as institutions of higher education will see working adults seeking um, additional credentials, people will be looking for competency-based education.
0: Well, we'll leave it there. President Sinise, thanks so much for for talking this through with me. Uh, I know we barely scratched the surface, but I hope this isn't the last time we talk about this.
2: Of course. Happy to talk to you anytime.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. I'm going to be speaking with Amy Perko from the Knight Commission about what's been going down in college athletics this year and what to expect next year. I hope you'll join us.